welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians on the land on where you are listening. I'm recording this from the Aboriginal land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I expect extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. I'm Jane Winter, the Account Director at Dietitian Connection, and I'm also an accredited practicing dietitian. So at the time of recording this podcast, Malnutrition Week Australia New Zealand is about to kick off. Um, starting October the 4th, uh, it's a campaign to raise awareness of malnutrition in Australia amongst both healthcare professionals and non-healthcare providers. Malnutrition is prevalent in Australia, in hospitals, in aged care settings and in the community. And as dietitians, we're obviously only too well aware that it creates costs for the individual, both physical, psychological, create costs for the healthcare system and healthcare organisations. Hopefully, if you're a dietitian listening, you've planned some activities uh, for Malnutrition Week to raise awareness, although we acknowledge that the ongoing COVID constraints uh, many of us are facing makes this a little bit more challenging. Today, we're going to have a look at malnutrition in the context of ICU, um, as well as the financial impact it might have on healthcare organisations. My guest today is Lena Brake. Lena is an accredited practicing dietitian with a decade of clinical nutrition experience working across several hospitals in Melbourne. She's currently the acting dietetics manager at Eastern Health and a specialist tube feeding dietitian at Tube Dietitian, a private practice she founded in March last year. Hi, Lena, and welcome. Hi, Jane. Thanks so much for having me. So to start off with, uh, we have to go there. You and I are both sitting in Melbourne <laughs> separately. Um, yep. How are you coping with COVID, both, I guess, personally and at work? Oh, gosh. Well, I think we have we hit more than 300 days of lockdown, probably. Feels I'm not like sure it. exactly. <laughs> it absolutely feels like it. Um, personally, I'm really sad I can't have mum's meals on a weekly basis. Um, so she drops food off at my sister's house. Then I go and pick it up there, which is within my, my 10 kilometers now. <laughs> so things are getting a little bit better as restrictions are easing and professionally the hospitals are under a lot of, a lot of pressure at the moment. Um, this Delta strain is very different to what, what we dealt with last year. Um, it's hitting much more of a younger population. Um, people are obviously younger, they're, they're sicker and they're staying in hospital longer. Um, oh. So we're absolutely seeing the effects pretty bad at the moment in the, professionally. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Interesting that they're staying longer too. Um, absolutely. So, yeah, it's a weird environment for all of us. Um, but let's let's have a look at uh, at your career path to where you are at the moment. Can you just 
give us a little bit of background about yourself and your path to the here and now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love being a dietitian. I studied at Monash University, um, finishing in 2010 here in Melbourne. Um, and then I did a research year, uh, an honours research year with St. Vincent's Hospital, which was around malnutrition and the cost implications of malnutrition. So this is a topic that's been spoken of a lot <laughs> in the dietetic world. Um, I then actually had my first new grad role in rural Victoria in Shepparton, beautiful Shepparton in Goulburn Valley Health. Absolutely loved it. And till today, I swear by, you know, your first job being in a rural or regional setting. Um, it teaches you so much about um, quick decision making, independent working, knowing how to escalate issues, very different to a metro hospital experience as a new grad. So I'm very grateful for my time in Shepparton. And after that, I crept back into the, the city, first at Northern Health, Monash Health, and now latest at Eastern Health, where I'm currently working and have been for about six years. Um, yeah, for the first four years of my career, I pretty much did anything and everything I could um, from private practice on a Saturday with a GP to subacute to outpatients. And then the, the latter six years have been primarily in the ICU setting. Um, and so, is that somewhere yeah. you always wanted to work? Honestly, I'm a very stubborn and decisive person. And I, from day dot of getting into dietetics, I wanted intensive care. Wow. Um, yeah. And I just set myself the goal that I need to get to the intensive care setting. Um, that tunnel vision is probably, it stopped me from jumping into other areas that I probably would have learned a lot from. But yeah, it's just me. I'm, I was just very determined to get to ICU. So, but, but now you've stepped out of that for the time being. Oh, yeah. So now in the last six months, I've taken on um, an acting management role at Eastern Health. Um, we have had lots of staffing changes in the department, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to just do something a little bit different from the clinical, given I've been in clinical for 10 years. And it's hard. It's hard <laughs> stepping away from the bedside and speaking to HR and OHS people and budget and just things that I never thought were happening happening in the background of a hospital. Yeah, which is interesting, isn't it? Because maybe that's a, a problem for us that yeah. that as the clinical dietitian, you're removed from all of that, and yet. The way you advocate for your services, I imagine, at clinical level is through all those HR, occupational health and safety outcomes, all that Absolutely. sort of thing. Absolutely. Things like statistics. Um, mm. I guess as, as a working dietitian on the ground, you don't really value, well, why do I have to stat my patient time every single day and make sure it adds up to 480 minutes or yeah. whatever it is? But then at the management level, the way you rearrange and redeploy and advocate for more EFT is by looking at the stats. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then amongst all that, you decided to set up your own business as well. Yes. Yeah, so last <laughs> year, <laughs> yeah, so last year, um, so in addition to ICU, I've been I've been the primarily the home enteral nutrition dietitian at Eastern Health. Um, and something that has always been on my mind working in several public hospitals has been the lack of access for private patients um, to access the public hospital service programs like the HEN services. Um, private patients that often get their tubes put in pub private hospitals 
are technically not eligible to receive public hospital services um, from perspective of, of home enteral nutrition. So I always felt like this is a real gap in the market and there's plenty of patients that choose to have their cancer treatment privately, end up with nasogastric short term. Dietitians in private hospitals may not be as well funded or EFT'd as in the public hospital, so they can't follow them up as regularly and we've got a big gap. Um, so that's sort of the idea behind tube dietitian. I'm, I'm primarily focused on NDIS and private patients that cannot access public hen services. If they can go public, I often go, nah, link in with your public hospital because you're better to have the MDT altogether. Um, but if you get knocked back, that's what tube dietitian is for. <laughs> so um, so you get managing to keep a foot in the clinical type direct patient care camp while you're doing your sort of more management work absolutely and honestly you're exactly right i'm now loving tube dietitian more than i did last year um, because i'm now completely removed from the clinical scene at eastern health and so having my one day a week of private practice has been yeah it's yeah. it's my comfort zone <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's my home so lena as i mentioned malnutrition week uh, commences on the 4th of October. And so if we look back at your work in the ICU and how malnutrition impacts your practice there, often if you're not working in ICU, you might think of those patients as being coming in because of trauma and an unexpected admission and previously healthy. But I guess that's not necessarily the case. You must have a lot of people come in with long-standing chronic illnesses. Um, and so do you see them coming in malnourished and or do they develop malnutrition there? What, how does malnutrition impact on ICU work? Yeah, absolutely. Good question. So um, we did an audit at Eastern Health. We've got three ICUs across three of our acute hospitals, and we did a quick audit to see how many of our patients actually come in malnourished, and we had one in three came in malnourished. We're a generalist ICU, so we're not a trauma-based burns unit ICU such as some of the other specialist intensive care units at the Alfred and the Royal Melbourne. They're probably more trauma-based, um, but at Eastern Health, it's a generalist ICU. So we're absolutely seeing a lot of um, chronic kidney diseases that perhaps have not been managing very well at home and are being admitted with malnutrition, we're seeing, um, you know, your frail elderly patients with chronic pain, back pain issues, overdosing on paracetamol, being admitted with, um, you know, a paralyzed gut because the paracetamol wow. paralyzed their gut. Um, they're socially isolated, so dehydration and food insecurity. Um, yeah, I'd probably say majority of our patient cases are pretty much respiratory issues. Um, chronic pain issues and, and chronic kidney issues that are not being managed well in the, in the community, you know. So and when they come in, are the majority requiring tube feeding or do if they're that sort of patient mix, are some of them eating orally? Some of, the, some of them are eating orally and actually in the ICU, those are probably the ones that I worry about more, the ones that are eating orally, because the moment you come in and you have a breathing tube popped in, so when you get intubated, a feeding tube gets popped in at the same time and you get started on the enteral feeding protocol automatically. Whereas for your orally eating patients in ICU, they've often got very big, heavy masks just you know, on their face, shooting about 60 litres of pure cold oxygen down their nose to help oxygenate their body because their lungs aren't working well. 
And that can really make your throat sore, your appetite poor. It can extend for, you can be on those sorts of masks for about three to four days. You can, Sometimes they're prescribed 24-hourly. So how do you stop and eat? <laughs> um, and often the dietitian's role is being there on the ward round to say, can we have a 20 minute break to scull down, you know, a protein drink, (laughs) you know, and it's, it's absolutely crucial. So there's, there's a very big shift in the ICU world more recently moving into the space of we can't forget the oral eaters. And the other shift that's happening is we can't forget the post ICU stage um, where, you know, after feeding someone with a, with a breathing tube and a feeding tube for about, seven days of their hospital stay, you know, meeting 80% of their requirements enterally. Then the moment they move to a general medical ward, the tube's taken out um, and they're just told to suddenly eat. Yeah. After you've been pretty much paralysed and bedbound for seven days, we have 30 muscles involved in every swallow and that person hasn't used a single one for seven days. And now you're telling them just muster up the courage and eat a hospital meal. Um, So that post-ICU stage we're seeing is super, super fragile and critical. And so another big role of a dietitian's presence in ICU is being there at that transition point and saying, keep the tube in or saying, um, can we swap to a more finer, you know, flexible feeding tube so that the patient's perhaps reduces um, pressure injury risk and they can go to the ward with this finer tube and be looked after and with, with some proper nourishment. So Yeah, it's interesting because um, we are aware that with bed rest, their leg muscles, for example, are going Absolutely. to deteriorate. And so we don't expect them to just get up and go for a run. We <laughs> give them rehab and we have physio, but you're not thinking that way about the swallow muscles yeah. and yet the same thing's going to happen. Absolutely. I mean, the physios, well, there's, there's some research that came out in 2018 that found that within the first seven days of ICU, because you're bed bound, you could lose up to 16% of your thigh muscle. Now, the thigh muscle is a big one. Yeah. Um, but essentially, if you don't use it, you lose it. Um, and you're right. The physios post ICU, they take very small baby steps like sitting upright for two <laughs> hours. And then the next day, I want you to sit at the edge of the bed for an hour. But with dietetics, yes, the teams just seem to let's take out the feeding tube and off to the ward and you can eat now. And what are the ramifications of someone coming out of ICU malnourished? Or what does it mean to them? I mean, we, we understand for sort of the general population that you're more likely to go back to hospital or you're more likely to have infections, but for post-ICU patients, is there particular poor health outcomes we're aware of associated with malnutrition? Absolutely. It's the same thing. A malnourished patient coming out of ICU is at higher risk of infectious complications, at higher risk of being readmitted to ICU, higher risk of a longer hospital length of stay, um, and organ dysfunction because protein doesn't only exist in our muscles. There's also structural proteins around our vital organs. And if we are, um, our patients are depleted of muscle sores and protein stores um, from being bed bound, immobilized, plus inadequate nutrition, their vital organs are just not going to operate well with very poor structural proteins around them. So 
we and and that muscle weakness can persist for up to five years post ICU. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's it's a problem. It's yeah, a real that's problem. Quite a price to pay, isn't it? Five yeah. years of weakness um, after. Weakness. Yeah. And what about um, for your home based clients? Do you see malnutrition? Do you come across it much in your your home community based clients? So with my tube dietitian, tube fed clients, majority of them had been in hospitals for quite an extended length of time. So they're post stroke. So they've been in hospitals for two to four months, acute and then rehab. Um, some of them are um, chronic conditions such as cerebral palsy, um, diagnosed since youth and persisted for a long time um, by the time they get to me they're pretty stable on their nutrition regimen um, and I don't often see that malnutrition will happen in the community but if it's happened in the hospital there's a definite high potential that it can get worse in the community if we don't have proper follow-up um, so I think there's a, actually a really interesting 2013 study, though, from a group of UK researchers that has said that 93% of at-risk or malnourished elderly actually live at home in the community. That's the elderly population. So I think it differs for different population groups, um, but malnutrition and home-based clients is absolutely prevalent. And I think it gets worse if we haven't set our patients up for proper follow-up with community dietitians, private practice dietitians. I really, every formula company that speaks to me, I say to them, you need to give more love to community dietitians. You know, the hospital dietitians, they meet with us probably every three months and tell us about all their new products. I don't see that happening as much in the community. And so I feel as though community dietitians and private practice dietitians are perhaps not as much in the know around what treatments there are in from a malnutrition perspective that can help them um, help their clients. And I think that's a real gap we've got. We need to empower our community dietitians to go malnutrition is something I can manage. And I guess it's the perennial sort of issue of access to products and that sort of thing when you're yeah. in the community and outside of a hospital setting because every hospital has slightly different set up for what they might provide in terms of nutrition support um, after discharge. Um, so, okay, we know it's a real problem in, in your patients um, and I guess we, we get the understanding of, of how to manage that. But yeah. in, in terms of your management role then, what's the implications for having a malnourished patient population for the hospital itself or the healthcare organisation? Yeah. So uh, to put it in simple terms, because that's the only way I was able to understand it. If you had two patients come into a hospital, both with pneumonia, one of them was severely malnourished and the other was well nourished. They've got the exact same medical diagnosis, but the government actually acknowledges that treating the one with pneumonia and severe malnutrition is a lot more burdensome on staff and on the healthcare organization, because we know that you're severely malnourished with pneumonia or with any medical condition, you will have more complications, your immunity is much poorer, so you're at higher risk of infection, poor wound healing from lack of skin elasticity and micronutrient deficiencies. Um, 
And so obviously a longer, longer length of hospital stay and more workforce demand. So the government actually acknowledges that. So the healthcare, if we diagnose docu- and document malnutrition correctly as hospital dietitians and vigilantly, um, the coders will pick it up and then the hospital will get reimbursed or provided more funding for the patient with pneumonia and severe malnutrition. So it absolutely impacts how much funding a healthcare organization gets. For my honors research project in 2011 that I did at St. Vincent's Hospital, um, we actually looked at um, what can be the cost implication of poor documentation of malnutrition. And seven patients had missed um, either coding or documentation, and that resulted over a five-week period. And that resulted in about 21,500 lost funding for just five weeks and seven patients. Yeah. So you expand that over a whole hospital or state even. (laughs) It's a lot of money. Um, So uh, dietitians, because, and I'm going back a bit, I admit, but when I was more in touch with clinical dietetics and hospital dietetics, we probably weren't great at the documentation yeah. in the medical records. And I don't know if it was a bit of a trepidation of being bold enough to say this patient's malnourished. Has that improved? You've absolutely hit the nail on the head. Um, IDNT um, has made things a little bit better that now we're starting to document um in a more standardized approach. So you've got to say the etiology and the evidence behind your diagnosis. So IDNT has made things a little bit better. I'm sure everyone else knows their IDNT stands for. Oh, International Dietetic and Nutrition Terminology. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. And is that Um, used now broadly, do you think? Like has everyone taken that up or not? Not all organizations, I know that some of them don't prefer the terminology used because it's, it's it was created in the USA, um, although it's considered international, but the terminology is very American. So some organizations don't use it as it is, but it definitely raised awareness that if we don't all document it in a standardized fashion, then it's going to get missed. It's like the doctor's saying, I'll write cancer in this way, and then I'll write cancer in this way. And everybody's writing cancer in in very different ways using different criteria. That's not going to work. And so that's what IDNT has tried to do with with malnutrition and nutrition issues. The other thing that I think has gotten a little bit better, but I don't think we're making full use of it, is there's become new ways to actually diagnose malnutrition. So you've got the subjective global assessment, which has a physical component to it. But there's also the GLIM criteria and there's also the the ICD-10AM. There's a few criteria now out there that can help diagnose malnutrition if you can't conduct a physical assessment, which I think is crucial in this COVID era um, when we're trying to minimise physical assessments for a COVID-positive patient. You could still observe, look at them, ask the questions and still diagnose malnutrition using other validated criteria. So I think we're not there yet. We're still, I'm still seeing students come through and missing that every nutrition assessment should technically be accompanied by, is the patient well-nourished, malnourished and to what degree? 
because that's that's our niche. That's how we contribute to the medical documentation. Um, every patient could have a diagnosis like that, and that's yet to be, I think, built in. <laughs> so obviously dietitians play a crucial role. I assume other people can put make the diagnosis of malnutrition in doctors the record can. Yeah, if they know can. if they know how to diagnose it um but yeah. uh so that's one step dietitians can be much more proactive in documenting it what do you think are the other sort of strategies dietitians can use to reduce malnutrition in their setting don't carry the load on your own you in serve at the end of the day, doctors and nurses are there 24-7 and we are not. Okay. Yeah. So we it's not a one-man show. Nutri- malnutrition is everyone's problem and everyone's business. But I'm not only talking about empowering the doctors and nurses to identify and pick up risk. I'm also I'm talking about empowering the patient. And that's something I really loved last year at Malnutrition Week. Dietitian Connection had quite a few really cool posters actually asking the patient, how much of your meal have you had? Um, And I think there's a really powerful message there that it's also the patient's responsibility in a hospital to be able to go, you know what, I haven't eaten well for four days. I've had probably a quarter of what I need to. Can I see a dietitian? So my message is we can't do it on our own and we know we can't. We've tried for years and it's not worked. Um, We need to empower nurses I always find it really funny how in ICU there's an automatic enteral feed protocol. So doctors and nurses start enteral feeding without, you know, we've we've created the protocol and they start it when we're not there on a Sunday night. And yet we're hesitant to encourage nurses to prescribe oral nutrition supplement drinks on a gem ward. I find that super interesting how we're we're struggling to let go of the power. <laughs> yeah, and, and I we, think we see that across settings too, not just yeah. in a hospital situation, but yeah. primary care, aged care, a whole range of settings, yeah. Yeah, so we absolutely need to empower them to not only pick up the signs but to also but to implement the strategies. What's an HEHP diet? Talk to your interns when they rotate about what a high-energy, high-protein diet is. Because when the intern's on the ward round and the consultant says, I'll put a dietitian referral in and start them on some uh, on a diet, the, the intern starting a high-NG, high-protein diet for the next three days before the Monday hits can make all the difference um, before the dietitian gets to the ground. So talk to your interns. Embed nutrition in your intern rotations, in your nursing rotations put up posters around the wards that encouraging patients to speak up. And do you find uh, the other members of the team, the doctors, the nurses, receptive to those messages from you? You know what, in the hospitals I've worked at, I think in Australia, in the public system, I can only speak about the public, we're really lucky. I do feel that um, there are certain medical groups like the gastroenterology teams, the renal teams, the ICU teams, um, the subacute medical teams, I've, in my experiences working with them is they're pretty good. They get it. Um, where I've seen a bit of uh, maybe lack of engagement is probably in the general medical space um, with our elderly population. I think there's a high turnover of patients in that space. Um, 
they often present with what might seem as like non-nutrition issues like breathing problems, whereas a gastro patient would present with severe diarrhea. So you have to pay attention to nutrition. So I feel as though there's groups of doctors that are doing it really well and there's groups that could be doing it better, Um, but it's our responsibility as dietitians to empower them, infiltrate, you know, their teaching programs and say, hey, let me in for 30 minutes. I just want to give a quick talk on what the MST is. Um, so so based on all of those ideas that you have about how dietitians can can be more effective or have a bigger voice um for malnutrition week this year do does your department departments plural um have activities planned yeah absolutely so last year whenever last year we had activities planned and this year we do too last year our motto was mission nutrition um, this year, our motto is malnutrition. It's everyone's business. Know the signs, make the referral, don't risk the consequences. So we've created little badges that dietitians will be wearing on the day that says that says malnutrition is everyone's business. Um, we've created posters as well and, and intranet banners that will be going up for, for the full week. Um, We'll have an infographic on every ward around how to complete the MST, <laughs> so a bit of a flow chart. So we're developing that infographic at the moment. Um, and something that worked really well for us last year was um, creating a video of dietitians holding up signs around why malnutrition matters. And um, so we're planning to repeat that this year and make sure it goes up on our um, workplace Facebook, um, it's a workplace sort of Facebook equivalent, yep. <laughs> um, yep. and probably it'll definitely go up on LinkedIn through the Eastern Health page. So we've got a few things, um, but yeah, is it, does the COVID environment make it more difficult because, or, or not? Or do, because uh, everyone's so focused on this COVID uh, um, going on. You know what? It's a double-edged sword because I think COVID can make it more complicated because obviously, yeah, there's a lot going on and people are burnt out as it is. But it's also we're in a super unique situation in a pandemic where people are just expecting change and are ready to learn something new almost every day because they know they have to <laughs> to pay the bills and go to work. Yeah. <laughs> so in a way, people are probably a little bit more receptive to you know immediate messaging and change. Um now because they have to deal with it so (laughs) we get we'll probably get a lot less um backlash by putting up posters on wards this time around than we would have in a non-pandemic world (laughs) and and maybe it's it's something new to read about (laughs) instead of vaccinations (laughs) and and COVID news it's something a little bit different we would have loved to hold like a malnutrition stand I know in the past that's sort of been um, the way to go at each of your hospitals, you know, you, you host a malnutrition stand with a bunch of fruit cupcakes or yeah. whatever. Obviously, that's not possible in the COVID era. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that yeah. face-to-face interaction. Last year we, and we're planning to do it this year as well, last year we um, created Zoom links to all the Dietitian Connection webinars that were happening. Um, and then we invited all nurses So we sent it out to all nurse unit managers and said, here are basically some really fun webinars that your nurses can dial into and just learn a little bit about nutrition. And that was really well received. Very good. Well, that's terrific. Well, 
Well, I hope, I hope you get a lot of traction from it and we hope that at Dietitian Connection you uh, send us um, anything you're doing and you share it all totally. on social media so you can enter the competition to win <laughs> tickets to Dietitians Unite next year. Um, and just uh, finally, Lena, this has been so interesting to hear both those perspectives, patient and organisation perspective on malnutrition, but do you have sort of what would be your, your messaging to dietitians? Because it, you know, we can get a bit of fatigue of talking about malnutrition. You know, as you say, you did your honours project 10 years ago. I feel like we've yeah. been banging on about this for a long, long time. So, you know, would, what would your message be to dietitians around getting this message about malnutrition out there? Oh, I think my biggest message would probably be um, don't be afraid to own it and diagnose it. Know the three different types, so starvation-related, chronic disease-related, and injury-related malnutrition. And there's a brilliant paper by Cheng and colleagues um, in 2019 that beautifully describes those three types of malnutrition and what's preventable and not preventable. So own it, um, diagnose it, and have objective measures to monitor it. Um, I think, you know, just saying someone's malnourished because they're eating poorly doesn't help anybody, doesn't help the patient and doesn't help you get the message across, but saying someone's malnourished because of um, mouth ulcers related to X, Y, Z medication for that they're getting treatment for. And this is how I'm going to monitor if it's going to get better or not. Um, that will help give the patient involved in goals to actually improve it and help the team know where you're at with your management. Um, so own it and objective measures is the conclusion. <laughs> Very sage advice, Lena. Um, thank you very much. Look, what we'll do is um, some of those references that you've talked about, we'll put links to at least the abstracts into the show notes. So if people want to read up further about it, they can go and have a look. Um, but good luck for all your Malnutrition Week activities. We can't wait to see them. And um, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for having me, Jane. To get all of the links and resources we discussed through this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review for us and a rating on the Apple Podcast app. Tell us what you thought about this episode, what you learned, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We really value hearing from you and we really value your feedback. So please, please hit that review button. 